Welcome to Tiny Expedition, Season 2, Episode 5. Get your helmet and your spacesuit ready. Today we are going to space. My name is Chris Powell. I'm going to be your storytelling guide for this journey. And I'm Dr. Sarah Sharman. Although I'm not an astronaut, I'll be serving as your science advisor for this episode. One thing many of us have in common is that as a kid, we look up to the sky and we dream about going to space. I like to go to space. What would you like to do in space? Go into the spacecraft. Cool. And drive the uh, spaceship. I'd like to be an astronaut. All right, so what would you like to do when you're in space? Eat space ice cream and float around. Eat space ice cream and float around. Matan, what would you eat in space? Grapes and bananas. Grapes and bananas. So would you take them with you or would you try to grow them while you're up there? I'll try to grow them up there. <laughs> Very cool. Today we're going to hear from Hudson Alpha faculty investigator Jeremy Schmutz and Mark Chatola, CEO and co-founder of Hudson Alpha associate company Sustain Space. And while Jeremy and Mark are brilliant in their respective fields, they have one thing in common with us. As kids, they both dreamed of going to space. Yeah, I haven't been to space yet. <laughs> Although um, when I was uh, when I was eight, um, definitely astronaut was right at the top of my list of things that I wanted to do in my life. That's the voice of Jeremy Schmutz from Hudson Alpha. I was always interested in space as a child. Um, I always wanted to work for NASA. Actually, I originally wanted to be an astronaut, and who knows, maybe someday. That's the voice of Mark Chitola from Sustain Space. While Mark's dream of becoming an astronaut hasn't come true yet, he did have the opportunity to work for NASA. Uh, but I had the opportunity to work at NASA in a variety of roles, both um, technical and non-technical. And while I was there, uh, I became um, aware of some of the NASA's capabilities, what it was doing well, what it wasn't doing well. Um, one of those was um, whether GAPS was life support. It could put people in space and support them, but not very efficiently. You'd have to keep on launching lots and lots of stuff up there. So I saw the need for regenerative life support systems. Um, and a big part of that would be growing plants in space. And so that's where my interest came from. While many of us will go outside, look up at the sky, and marvel at the beauty of space, other people like Mark are asking even bigger questions like, how do we get more people to space? And once we get to space, how do we take care of them and provide what they need to survive there? The space economy is growing day by day, and companies like Mark's are making sure that what may seem like a dream to some becomes a reality for us. So the space industry is growing. There's proposals for several space stations, private space stations. Um, one in Earth orbit, there's one that will be in a particular lunar orbit called the Lunar Gateway, um, which will be the first really deep space space station. Um, there's specific plans for NASA to put initially to land some people on the moon, but then to create a sustainable lunar base and this is in addition to Elon's talk of putting a million people on Mars. Um, and so that's a lot of people support. Unless you want to keep on hauling stuff up at, say, like maybe $10,000 per kilogram or whatever, um, which is going to require a lot of fuel, produce a lot of carbon, um, you need to find a way to recycle organic matter and grow food in space. Um, so you don't have to keep on transporting stuff. If you can do that, you can have a self-sustaining cycle of people in space. And for instance, you don't need to keep sending things up there. You can save a lot of costs and have a lot more people up there. So that's really valuable. That's kind of the holy grail of this. 
Currently, people in space eat the equivalent of a freeze-dried picnic lunch. Providing them with fresh food is an important goal of the space industry. Mark's company is part of the effort to grow plants in space, an industry called astroculture. I had the opportunity to delve more into astroculture specifically. I felt that was a gap that really wasn't being addressed well at all. Um, for instance, water recycling is being addressed pretty well. They're able to circulate, recycle, um, say up to 97, 98% of water use in space. That's pretty good and they're working to do better. Um, for plants though, um, they're not nearly that in terms of biomass recycling, um, nowhere near that. Um, right now they're growing a few leaves of lettuce per month. Actually, the astronauts get to eat about one leaf of lettuce per month on the space station. And recently they got to eat a couple of little pieces of chili pepper. Um, and it took us 50 years to get to this point, 50 years of astroculture research and development. So it seems like a lot more could be done. If you want people to live in space, a lot more needs to be done. One leaf of lettuce is not enough to feed one million people in space. And it took us 50 years to get to that point. So we need to be asking the question of, well, why is it taking us this long? What are the challenges that we face in being able to produce at a scale that could actually make these visions a reality? Plants are a lot like people. Um, and space is pretty hostile toward both plants and people. Um, space is essentially this really cold vacuum with lots of radiation. Um, if you put a person out in space, they'll die very quickly. Same thing with most plants. So um, the first challenge is to have an enclosed space to grow plants in that is thermally controlled, um, that has essentially an atmosphere, uh, the adequate pressure, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, space stations provide those sorts of environments. You can put them on satellites too, but the National Space Station, since spring humans, it provides a lot of what plants need in terms of protection from the space elements. Um, then another challenge is um, illumination. Uh, if you want the plants to grow, especially to grow a lot and do well, you need to illuminate them. You need to give them lots of light. Um, you can't just put them on the surface of a space station because of the vacuum, because of the sunlight. Um, and you can't really put glass out there because there'd be pressure and not much anyway. So the way it's done is through lots of LEDs and things like that. But the thing is, when you're running lots of electricity to heat up all these LEDs, not to heat up, but to illuminate them, to power them, you're creating a lot of heat and thermal energy and using up a lot of electricity. Unfortunately, electricity is in short supply in the space station. You wouldn't think so, but it is. The environment that plants face in space is a far cry from their normal habitats on Earth. Mark's company has a device that could address some of the challenges of space life and make growing plants in space easier at a larger scale. So um, we're prototyping hardware to grow these. Um, we want to have a, a plug and play system where researchers and people growing crops in such essentially plug um, their plant growth chamber into a bigger sort of setup um, that can provide water, um, oxygen, um, thermal control, a lot of things like that that are necessary for plants. Um, ideally, provide some robotic services, all that's a bit further down the road. Um, we have an idea for a super farm where you have a whole giant rack where you could put these plug and play modules into it. Mark's work is primarily interested in sustaining life in space. Jeremy Schmutz is taking a slightly different approach by using space to help life on Earth. Jeremy and team are currently working with cotton and, you guessed it, in space. My name is Jeremy Schmutz and uh, I work at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. I've been here about uh, 14 years since the Institute opened 
And my lab primarily works on plant genetics and genomics um, and analysis of very large uh, data sets. Yeah, our project, uh, which is to send cotton to space, is funded from Target, uh, the retail store. And uh, Target had, had funded a challenge, um, and the challenge was um, try to figure out how to use our space resources at the ISS to improve the sustainability of cotton on the Earth. And so uh, a good friend of mine that we've worked with for many years at Clemson University, Chris Sosky, uh, and I got together to apply for this challenge. Um, and it is a hard challenge because what you want to try to do is figure out how to, how to really take best use of space and the, the microgravity and, uh, and, and extra radiation environment in space to understand something about a plant process. Uh, a lot of the work that's been done in this area has been to look at how plants grow how plants uh, move water uh, and liquid around in the plants in space because it's different in microgravity. This particular experiment involves something researchers call cotton transformation. Cotton transformation is when you take a, uh, a plant and you kind of turn it back into an early plant. You retrograde it into, into cells that are like a, called a protoplast, which are kind of like primordial cells, almost like stem cells you can think of them in, in, in when we talk about medical research. And then you can do things with those cells, including in the plant world, you can put new pieces of DNA into those cells, and that's called transformation. And then you can regrow those cells and turn them back into a plant again. But that plant now contains the new DNA you put into it. Okay, this is pretty common. Um, we have, for example, uh, Kankshita Swaminathan here as a faculty member at Hudson Alpha Institute who runs a whole transformation center where she puts new DNA in or, uh, or tests and probes genes that are already in a plant to figure out what it does, and, and this is like plant biotechnology. In the cotton case, um, the big issue with cotton is that doing this, putting a piece of DNA into cotton and then getting it to regrow into a plant that you can do something with to test it, takes a long time, like two years or three years, um, depending on the plant. And so working with, uh, with, with, with Chris Sosky, he, his lab has been developing rapid transformation, which means that you can go from, uh, from this primordial uh, cells to a plant in six to eight months. Our project is to look at different genotypes of cotton and how those plants respond to transformation and the microgravity and radiation in space versus how they respond on, on Earth. And the reason why this is, this is reasonable to do and interesting is because what we're going to look at is we're not just looking at the DNA and saying, well, if it's in space, it's going to accumulate some mutations and variation because of the radiation, which is some of the kinds of experiments that have been done. Uh, we're looking at the uh, expression of genes uh, in this tissue, and this callus tissue it's called, when you're regenerating this plant. And then we're also looking at the epigenetics. We're looking at the DNA methylation and modification that happens, um, that's called, the, that, that happens on the backbones of DNA. And that's really what we think is driving this difference in the ability of these, um, in the ability of these different genotypes to transform uh, at super fast speeds or really slow speeds. And so by putting it uh, into space, we have another environment which affects the methylation, could affect and likely affects the methylation of this process. Jeremy mentioned that part of their research involves looking at the epigenetics of cotton. Dr. Sharman, in relation to this research, how would you define epigenetics? Epigenetic changes are reversible changes to DNA 
but they don't change the sequence of the DNA, they just change how cells read that DNA sequence and subsequently whether they produce the associated protein. So basically, small molecules or chemical groups will bind to the DNA and affect what we call gene expression. The epigenetic change causes the associated gene to turn on or turn off depending on the molecule and its location on the DNA. So these epigenetic changes are yet another important DNA change that can be studied and targeted by researchers. There's one important thing you need to know about cotton. It's not very diverse genetically. When you want to cross a plant with another plant in order to selectively breed for traits, there needs to be some diversity between the two plants. With cotton, that diversity is just not there. So sometimes people are like, uh, hey, you know, like, um, why is it important to be able to, to go in and, uh, for example, knock out some genes or uh, modify a gene and, and, and ramp it up so, so expression-wise? Um, in cotton, it's really important because we've done a whole bunch of cotton work over the last 12 years now. We've sequenced many different cotton genomes and analyzed many different cotton resources. And we found that cotton, the kind of thing that you would see planted in the fields, has very little genetic variation in it. That's because cotton, tetraploid cotton, was formed about 1.4 million years ago, and that's where two of these, two different species came together. They're diploids, meaning they only have two copies of DNA, came together to make four copies of DNA in the tetraploid. And then that pretty much is where all of the cotton that we use uh, in modern times comes from, is that one event that occurred in the wild somewhere. And so uh, we call that a bottlenecked crop. And what that means is there's very little genetic variation. And so when you're breeding cotton, trying to breed cotton, uh, when you're breeding cotton, you, um, you bring in, uh, there, there's not a lot of genetic variation or diversity to be able to bring into the breeding process. And so cotton is very difficult. It's not like when we talk about some other things, like we're working on like, like switchgrass or poplar or something, where there's this very large reservoir of diversity out there in the wild. Cotton doesn't have that. And so this project um, will speed that up to the point where we can take a lot of different kinds of, um, of a lot of different kinds of targets and, and genes that have come out of our previous work looking at cotton, um, where we have, for example, sequenced all of the wild tetraploid cottons and compared them against um, uh, several of the modern elite lines of cotton. And we can ask what's different between those, and those become then targets to use to test um, in this new system for transformation of cotton. Crosses in plants are made to select for favorable traits that help the plant grow faster and produce more fruit or biomass. We asked Jeremy what traits scientists are currently selecting for in cotton. Uh, so looking at, um, looking at uh, reducing, uh, reducing pesticides and inputs into cotton, uh, looking at reducing water use for cotton, and looking at improving the quality and production of the um, quality and production of the bowls that come off the cotton. The other other thing that, that we learn about this, hopefully, as we do this project in space, first we learn about how uh, transformation and regeneration of plants works in space, which we have very little data on right now. So that's applicable across lots of uh, species. But also, if we learn uh, how to recreate these fast transforming strains, that's something that can be moved quite easily to other dicots. In recent years, uh, there's been a lot of development for these uh, rapid transformation abilities in grasses, like we work on here at the Institute uh, that you might plant, including things like, um, like, like uh, sorghum or corn. 
uh, but not that much has been happening in dicots. And dicots are, are flowering plants that aren't grasses, uh, kind of like, and, and this includes things like cotton or trees or other things like that. While Jeremy's cotton project with Target and Dr. Sosky from Clemson is new, Jeremy and the plant genomics team at Hudson Alpha have a long history of working with a large diversity of plants. In fact, half of all of the existing high-quality plant reference genomes have been sequenced and assembled by the Hudson Alpha Genome Sequencing Center team. Our group has been working on cotton from, uh, we, were, we were the ones who sequenced the first tetraploid cotton genome uh, now eight or nine years ago, high-quality tetraploid cotton genome, um, and we've continued to, um, to, to work in cotton wild, um, the wild species that are left of cotton, um, and then also in now uh, we have a large project looking at elite lines of cotton that are coming out of people's breeding programs um, to try to understand like where cotton breeding has been going over the last 20 years and then, uh, and then how can we continue to try to improve cotton uh, as a crop for the U.S. and the world. While the work of Mark and Jeremy is not directly connected, there is a relationship between Hudson Alpha and Mark's company Sustained Space. As the space economy continues to expand, there are new private companies in the race to create vehicles to carry both people, supplies, and experiments to and from the space station. One of those companies has a plan to land its vehicle at the Huntsville International Airport, just 15 minutes away from Hudson Alpha. Mark's goal is to use this vehicle to deliver samples directly from space to Hudson Alpha, literally within minutes, for sequencing and further testing. This may sound like a vision of the future, or it may just be our wake-up call that the future is already here. To learn more about Sustained Space and the Hudson Alpha Genome Sequencing Center, visit our episode page at tinyexpeditions.org. You'll find that information in the show notes. Thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition into space. For our season finale, we will be joined by Hudson Alpha faculty investigator, Kankashita Swaminathan. She'll help us understand what we can realistically expect from biotechnology and agriculture, both now and in the future. Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama. We've got a campus full of scientists doing public research, alongside of companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. And that includes everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If you find this podcast helpful, do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. And tell someone that you listened to this interesting little story about genetics. Knowledge is better when you share it. Thanks for joining us.